Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Richard Mulvaney. He's a professor, part of the College of Agricultural, Consumer, and Environmental Sciences at University of Illinois. And we're going to talk about the use of nitrogen, carbon, and fertilization of, uh, of plants and on soil. So, Richard, thank you for coming. My pleasure to be here. If you would, tell me a bit about your background first, and then I want to ask you about the current research you're doing. Well, I'm a native of Illinois and have a long history connected with agriculture. Grew up essentially on a family farm in the northern part of the state and had an an interest in soil science that led me to, to get three degrees in it. And my focus in more recent times has been with nitrogen fertilization. And we've done many studies on looking at the fate of nitrogen fertilizer. And as a part of that work, we became interested in the long-term impact of nitrogen fertilization on the soil itself. And, and that's, that's really the focus of what uh, I'd like to talk about in this interview. Okay. So how does nitrogen fertilization typically occur? I know there's nitrogen-fixing bacteria, but uh, you know, is it just put in there with the exogenous fertilizer, or how does it typically happen? So the, the, uh, the use of the intensive use of nitrogen fertilizers in, in modern cereal production is, uh, is a global occurrence. And the, the world's food supply has a lot to do with the use of those fertilizers. So they are the most important fertilizers that industry sells, and they play a huge part in bolstering the food supply. So we're talking about the input of synthetic manufactured nitrogen as a staple part of our food production system. And that nitrogen is is produced in the form of ammonia. The source of that N is actually the, the nitrogen gas in air. But the nitrogen, in order to make it useful for, for crop growth and plant nutrition, it has to be converted to a more reactive form and that form is ammonia. Mm-hmm. And once the ammonia has been synthesized, it can be applied in that form, or it can be converted to other nitrogen fertilizers. And of those, the most common would be synthetic urea. Okay. So there's a tremendous usage of nitrogen uh, around the world. And a good example of that would be for corn production here in the Midwest. Nitrogen is the leading fertilizer for that purpose. And we became interested in what effect that would have on soil organic matter going forward in the longer term. And and I might tell you how, how we got interested in this topic. It was not because of what we had read in books or the literature. There we would find the message that nitrogen fertilizers 
build soil organic matter by increasing the input of residues. And I had never seriously questioned that until my colleague Saeed Khan had had noticed some years ago, actually, that in in years when the the moral plots, which is a historic cropping experiment on this campus, in in years when the moral plots were growing corn in all three rotations, he would notice that the corn was doing best and was tallest and darkest green on the south end of the plots where there was a corn, oats, hay rotation. And then it got shorter and didn't look as good as he went north into the corn-soybean rotation and then into continuous corn. Well, we found that pretty interesting because the continuous corn would be the plots that get the most synthetic nitrogen. They get it every year. The corn oats hay only gets synthetic nitrogen once every three years. So it was interesting to us that the plots with the highest nitrogen input, apparently the corn was doing the worst. Do you think that the exogenous nitrogen is uh, causing a shutdown of the natural nitrogen fixing behavior of the bacteria on the soil? Or what do you think it could be? Yes, in, in that sense, there is an effect because nitrate derived from the fertilizer has long been known to inhibit free living and also symbiotic nitrogen fixation. So yes, there is that effect. But in this case, the, the broader effect and the one that develops over time has to do with the soil's content of organic matter. And so the the publications that I mentioned advocating the idea that nitrogen fertilizers build organic matter didn't really seem to fit what we were seeing in the moral plots. Organic matter has a myriad of benefits for crop production, including its impact on, on nutrient supply and also its, its uh, well-known ability to store water. And so when we saw the, the corn doing poorer, where nitrogen had been applied every year for continuous corn, it caught our attention and uh, made us look deeper. Okay. Why would people keep applying more and more fertilizer if it's known that that's counterproductive and hurts the ability of the soil to sustain whatever crops on it? So, so nitrogen is applied really, as I said, it's, it's the leading synthetic commercial fertilizer and, and it's applied in order to boost cereal or corn yields. And, and it's a really important part of, of farming throughout the world. But what, what the farmers don't know, typically, is how much yield their soils can produce without that nitrogen fertilizer. They never leave, well, a, stri- they never leave a strip unfertilized. What about the application of it? Is it all applied right in the beginning before anything grows? You know, have they tried applying it uh, every couple of weeks as things grow? Is there a, a sweet spot on how to apply, you know, how much and when? Well, that, that's another major issue. And uh, in the Midwest, in, including Illinois here, a common practice that comes into play typically in, uh, in November would be fall anhydrous ammonia application 
and that's directed toward the next corn crop that will be grown. So fall applied in is, is a common practice. It's not the best practice in terms of maximizing efficiency for crop uptake. That would make a lot more sense if the nitrogen was applied when the crop was in the field. And so it should be applied during the growing season, not far in advance, in order to uh, get better efficiency on uptake. So that can be done in different ways. We call this side dressing, and it would entail, typically, the form would be urea ammonium nitrate in solution. And, but anhydrous ammonia can also be used for this purpose. The nitrogen would typically be applied in June. And the ideal case would be to split the dose and apply it more than once, as, as you've alluded to. But that's limited to, to a degree by the logistics for farmers dealing with large acreages. Now, one of the practices that's come into, into uh, fairly common use in, in this recent time is the option of side dressing with a system called Y-Drops. That's a product of 360 Yield Center, and it's designed to uh, apply the nitrogen right next to the corn row and leave it on the surface with the idea that it will be washed into the soil through dew or precipitation. So, uh, again, you, you discovered that crop rotation allows you to have a lot less nitrogen fertilizer and makes corn, for instance, grow a lot better. But the whole farming industry doesn't know this or like what, what why, how? So, so let, me, let me reiterate here that when I said the corn was doing better under corn, oats, hay than under continuous monoculture, mm -hmm. what I'm referring to here is that in that rotation, there were two years when corn was not grown and in continuous corn, it's grown every year. Right. So, so corn is the cash crop, and when it's grown, it's going to get fertilized with nitrogen. Right, but you said with crop rotation, the corn grew better. Did you also apply less fertilizer to when the corn was there? You know, it was the corn's turn, or you applied the same amount as you normally would? In the case of the moral plots, the nitrogen rate is fixed at 200 pounds per acre. And that's applied regardless of the cropping system in which the corn is grown. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, in the years then that you weren't growing corn, you still applied the same amount of nitrogen? No, there was no nitrogen applied oh, okay. except when corn was grown. So you put less, so it had a breather of, of Correct. two years. Correct. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and let me point this out as well, that in that kind of a three-year rotation, uh, there's one year with alfalfa hay 
And a major issue for grain farmers would be they can't afford to leave the soil unproductive for grain crops. So, so that rotation is in place in the Moro plots, but it's not common in production fields. Okay. I mean, why is it not used in production fields? Crop rotation, uh, you know, like how much of a yield boost or benefit does it have to rotate crops in a three-year cycle like what you guys did? So, so it's not going to make up for the one year when corn is grown to cover the three when it would have been grown continuously or to cover the most common rotation of corn soybean. So you have in, in the case of the three-year rotation, a year with alfalfa hay. Well, the market for hay is much more limited than the market for corn or soybeans. And therein lies the catch. So the farmer can't afford to take his land out of grain production and have a year off with alfalfa because he may he may not have much income from that crop. Oh, okay, so I mean, hay though is necessary. If you had a collective of X number of farmers that all went on the same rotation program, you know, uh, the ones that are producing hay for that year, maybe they could be subsidized so that they still would make enough when they did corn, but now they're providing something necessary to other aspects of farming and vice versa. Okay, I, I agree. There is some flexibility in in that t- in that that type of adjustment. But let me also make the point that when the corn oats hay rotation was established in the Morrill plots back in 1876, hay was a staple crop because horses were the source of farm power. They needed hay as feed. Mm. And so that's all gone now with the transition to mechanization. So the market is naturally much more restricted now than it than it would have been back at that time. Well, I mean, what else could be rotated in that would be useful, if not hay? Well, there are, there are small grain crops that might be a potential, but they too would take some nitrogen. For example, wheat would be one possibility. Oats used to be a viable choice as well. But again, the horses were the source of power, and they're the ones who consume the oats. Well, what about other animals, pigs, chickens, et cetera? What, what could be grown, let's say, to feed them? I mean, there's got to be stuff that could be grown that could be used in, in other parts of farming. And no doubt there is. For example, with, with, uh, with hogs, a, a major source for their diet would be corn. And there wouldn't be any need for hay with hogs. But with, with dairy cattle, um, there could be some use, but it's more mm-hmm. limited. So, so it becomes an issue of market and uh, profiting from the crops that are grown. So there's nothing else that could be grown? I, I'm not saying with, that. With traps and soybeans? and Or is that just uh, become so common and so subsidized that we are yeah. kind of trapped to grow those only? Yeah, and that's really the key right there. So yeah. our, we have a system that is set up for grain production, and corn and soybeans are the predominant grain crops. Yeah, that's really the key. Well, I mean, what, you know, what else could be grown there that you think would be very helpful, would be a big source of food for everybody? You know, I, I know we're kind of stuck in this system we have, but, you know, again, ideally, what else could be grown that you think would be very useful and well, would there, accomplish rotation and boost yields and, 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 and et cetera? Sure. There, there, are, there are many possibilities that could grow on the kind of soils and the climate we have here in the Midwest. No question about it. Organic farmers are exploiting those possibilities, and, uh, and, and that's a great thing to see. We need more diversity. 
But the point we're making here is that for conventional grain farmers, they're pretty much locked into corn and soybeans. That's the problem. What about wheat, though? I mean, wheat is big. Yeah, absolutely. Wheat is another possibility, and it is. What does a a wheat rotation look like versus a corn-soybean one? Like, you know, wheat-corn rotation, what does that look like, for instance? Well, typically, wheat's going to be part of a of a a multi-year rotation. And the the corn would be the crop that would typically follow a legume. And when mm-hmm. I say because the nitrogen fixing, that's why, yeah. Precisely. And when I say legume, I have in mind more of a forage legume like clover or alfalfa. Mm, okay. But I mean, why can't you do that through cover crops instead of, you know, instead of like redoing the whole field? Like, why not do that? Well, it's a cover crop, crop you still could plant for the year, I would think, right? Sure. Cover crops are getting more attention these days. And with legumes like hairy vetch, for example, yes, they can supply some of the in to the cereal crop that follows. Yes. Okay. So going back to your experiment with these plots, so I guess you found what, was there an ideal rotation or again, at least do corn soybean? You know, I don't know. What if you revisit it and use, you know, actively use cover crops? Is that worth an experiment or like what would be next for you to, to look at to see what well, to do? Well, there's a lot of work being done on cover crops now, and that's a good thing. But in in our in the moral plots here that, that we were talking about, there's no flexibility to change the cropping system. There are three systems, continuous corn, corn soybean, and corn oats hay, and they've been in place can, for many, many years. So so mm. we're talking about that that set of cropping systems. And the point I'm making is that the soil was different and had become different among those systems. Okay. Uh, so what, um, I mean, what, what would be your idea? What, what, what can people change in order to you know, improve their soil? It sounds like they need to rotate out and grow different crops and or reduce the amount of nitrogen without compromising yield. So I would think in order to you know, be sustainable, with your agriculture and not like suck the land dry and kill it, you know, with corn, 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 like what, what could be done? What combination of things can be done to make it better? If, if the farmer can, can introduce legumes, then the biological nitrogen from fixation will reduce the need for chemical nitrogen from fertilizers. And that's, that's a very good strategy, but I should make the comment here that the most common legume, namely soybeans, doesn't really enrich the soil to speak of. Grain legumes don't really leave much in after they've been harvested. For that, you need the forage legumes, as I mentioned earlier, clover and alfalfa. Well, can clover and alfalfa be put as a cover crop and then have, you know, like ruminants like cows graze on it so they get some nutrition and it's done the job of replacing nitrogen and it's not, you know, it's not harvested, but again, at least you get those two things out of it. Right, and and especially with organic systems, that's the same. That's the very strategy that's being used. They're introducing a multi-phase rotation, and it will include legumes, and they will also typically have grazing livestock. Yes, that's exactly mm-hmm. what they do. So, what happens when you have a system like that? How much is your nitrogen input reduced? Oh, it well, organic systems don't use uh, commercial <clears throat> fertilizer. They're not going to use any at all. And so they're putting nitrogen in first from fixation by the legume. And secondly, for non-legume crops like corn that may be in their rotation, they're going to be applying 
uh, typically manure of, of some form, and that would supply a lot of N instead of fertilizer. What have you noticed about like the, the GMO corn and things like that versus, uh, you know, non-GMO corn? Or is there no non-GMO corn at all anymore? Or if it is, it's, it's organic completely. It is like a, now a total division between organic and non-organic. Correct. Yeah, that, that's exactly what's, what's happened, that the organic growers are, are using non-GMO corn. It's, it's not a big market, but, but that's what they have to use. And most, not all, but most of the conventional production systems would use GMO. So there's also that too. I mean, has anyone looked to see how, uh, you know, the GMO corn itself, with or without the same amount of fertilizer, impacts the soil health? Does, is there any correlation there as well? Um, uh, I, I can't speak definitely on that, but there have been there has been research to look at the impact of GMO versus non-GMO crops like corn. Yes, hmm. I, I should also mention, however, that in the case of the Morrow plots here on campus, that's going to be a GMO uh, corn that's grown. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I mean, it would be interesting. I guess you can't do everything, but. It would be interesting to see, uh, you know, the GMO itself, how much that affects the, uh, you know, the soil health. Oh, I, I definitely agree with you. Yes, it, it's an important topic. So what, um, I mean, you know, what, what advice comes out of this, the experiments with the moral plots? Um, okay, so, you know, what's next? okay, so what what we <clears throat> found in the moral plots was that the, was that despite getting the highest input, not only of nitrogen fertilizer, but also residues. The continuous corn had the lowest organic matter as compared to the other two rotations. Mm. So this this kind of flies in the face of the conventional wisdom that adding nitrogen to increase yield builds organic matter by increasing the input of residues. We were putting the most residues into continuous corn, but it didn't show up in the organic matter. So so we did a five-decade balance on the moral plots, comparing the three rotations, and the the deficit on the loss of soil organic carbon and nitrogen was greatest for continuous corn. So so here we were applying the most inputs for continuous corn, and we're losing the most from the organic matter. Mm, okay. And that's I mean, now, now some nations are, are saying, oh, uh, farming is destroying the planet, you know, causing carbon emissions. So they're trying to uh, force farmers to reduce the amount of uh, fertilizer they're using, you know, in the Netherlands and now Germany and oh, yes. Canada, and, you know, God forbid here. Oh, yes. So how does your, your findings play into this? Okay, so, so a point I need to make here, it would be that the crop... A crop like corn derives the majority of its nitrogen not from the fertilizer, but from the soil. And with that in mind, an important strategy that could help improve things would be to estimate the soil's capacity to supply nitrogen because soils differ. So if we can more accurately estimate what the soil supplies, then we can adjust fertilizer rates accordingly. If a soil has more supplying capacity, we cut back on the fertilizer and vice versa. Well, I mean, if it has less capacity and if you crank up the fertilizer, it's just, I mean, it's just, you know, keeping it dead 
why why not rejuvenate it? How long how long might it take to rejuvenate? And has anyone explored this? You know, would one season of you know clover and the right cover crops be enough to rejuvenate a soil where it could be planted again? No, it wouldn't. Soil changes take place over considerable time periods. We're talking at least decades. So this is not a rapid process that can be easily solved with just a year or two of a different rotation. It's going to take time. But what would a year or two of rotation do? I won't completely fix things by any means, but how much would it help? I mean, it's going to help increase the soil's fertility and and end supplying capacity, maybe by uh, 5 to 10%. But I would make another point here that that a more rapid fix is available from many kinds of manure. Manure is something that will really pay off in a big way for increasing soil end supply. Hmm. I mean, uh, you know, livestock are being culled too with, uh, you know, whatever the crazy reason is. So, I mean, it seems like we're headed in the wrong direction completely. It, it seems that way to me too. Um, I, I'm, I'm aware of the view, especially in the organic agriculture world, that agriculture cannot be sustainable until the animals are brought back to the farm. And and I'm inclined to agree with that view. So, I mean, uh, what other tweaks have you found in terms of, uh, you know, maximizing the nitrogen capacity of the soil? And then we haven't talked about, you know, the, the PK part of the NPK, phosphorus mm-hmm. and potassium. Is there any, I mean, in, in, you know, when you grow corn, 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 what happens to the phosphorus and the potassium? Is it disturbed at all? Well, that's a good thing you mentioned that issue. <laughs> Because the moral plants have something to say there as well. Oh. And, and, and what they have to say is that for the unfertilized treatment in the moral plots, where there's no N, P, or K applied, and yet they're cropped year after year. So there's removal, but no input. For those treatments, in, in over 140 years of continuous cropping, there are no symptoms of P or K deficiency. There's mm-hmm. nitrogen, but no P or K. So, so this kind of flies in the face of thinking that we need regular inputs of P and especially K, especially K. And that's a whole other subject that we looked into in great detail. This is crazy. So, I mean, if phosphorus and potassium really aren't needed, even if we have a, you know, a screwed up monoculture system and it's really the nitrogen, and you now know how to improve that. I mean, this, you know, if, if, if people thought of it in the right way, this would be huge. I mean, it could reduce fertilizer inputs tremendously if things were changed <laughs> in the right way. And then, you know, all the people complaining about fertilizer runoff and nitrogen and, uh, uh, you know, all the environmentalists would, would actually find a pretty good solution to this if it was done right. <laughs> the potential is there, but it's, it's not necessarily so easy to to, to realize the potential. So, so yeah. l- let me make the statement that that my colleagues and I have not had the chance to work on phosphorus. So I don't want to say much about that in terms of deficiencies or fertilization. But on potassium, we have worked. <laughs> and and okay. there, the typical finding is that there is no yield benefit to applying potassium fertilizer on most Midwestern soils. None at all. This is very odd. So, I mean, (laughs) what is the commercial name for potassium and for uh, phosphorus? I mean, like potash. 
You know, I've, I've, yeah. from what I've read recently, uh, potash is incredibly important. What, what does it contribute? And you know. <laughs> Okay. I'm not debating the importance of potassium in plant nutrition. I'm not debating that at all. Mm. But the key issue is how much is in the soil itself. Right. You don't need it. You don't need it. Yeah. Exactly. Precisely the case. The soil has a huge amount of reserve. And, and I might mention this was known uh, over a hundred years ago, when a guy named new. yeah, a guy named Cyril Hopkins was a big player here in Illinois, and we came across one of his publications <laughs> talking about potassium fertility, and his message in that publication was, this was to farmers, you don't need it; the soil has plenty. This is crazy. Yeah, I mean, well. What it tells me, though, is it, it, it sounds like it's incredibly important for you to, if you know, I mean, I'm not trying to put it on you, but if you're able to figure out, okay, if someone wants to just grow only corn, what's the best way to maximize the yield of it and, you know, keep the soil from turning to, you know, useless dust, um, you know, with the, and, and reduce fertilizer usage. I mean, if there's, a, if there's a way to do that, it's a win-win-win. Okay, so, like so, so we have two approaches in mind to address that. One is, and especially focusing on nitrogen, to take the soil into account and lower the fertilizer dose if the soil is richer. And, and there are ways to test the soil to know that. The second approach we've, we've been working quite a bit on is to increase the efficiency of plant uptake of the fertilizer of fertilizer mm -hmm. nitrogen. So we use something called nitrogen 15, which is an isotope to label the fertilizer. So we know mm -hmm. how much ends up in the crop mm -hmm. and how much didn't. And we've been working on different application methods, timing and placement, and even nitrogen form. And, and there are differences. And what we talked about earlier is very relevant that if you can split the dose you have a good chance of increasing the uptake efficiency. And, and so why does it matter how much gets taken up versus left in the soil? Well, the problem is when you leave it in the soil, it might get lost to the environment. But more than that, it's going to stimulate the soil microbes to burn carbon. And this becomes the problem when we talk about the depletion of organic matter brought on by synthetic fertilizer. It's not just what do you mean, the is that is that due to respiration or what do you mean yes. burn? Yeah. So yeah. what okay. happens right, what happens is that carbon and nitrogen cycling is closely coupled. Mm -hmm. And with most of the microbes in soil, just like with us, they need carbon to make energy. But in order to use that carbon, they need to make the enzymes that would be necessary. And all the enzymes contain nitrogen. So mm. there's the interaction right there. So, if so they have to fix nitrogen as part of their life cycle and to utilize carbon to grow and proliferate. Okay, I'm not talking about nitrogen fixation from the air. That's not what this is about. This is about okay. the vast group of microbes that are involved in residue decomposition. They're the herd in the soil. And so they want to burn that carbon from the residue and in order to do that, they need available nitrogen to make the enzymes. So, you, uh, uh, quick question: When you say residue, you mean the residual excess nitrogen? No, no, no. What oh. I mean, that, what I mean there is the 
the biomass returned from the crop left in oh, the field. Okay. The unharvested ends yes, and bits exactly. And stuff. Okay. So that, that becomes a food source for the microbes. They're right, going to make okay. energy and they're also going to make biomass, but they need nitrogen in order to do it. Mm. So if if the nitrogen is not taken up by the crop, it becomes a factor that can stimulate the microbes to burn more organic carbon, either from the residues or indigenous sources in the soil itself. And this is the problem. So if we can maximize the uptake by the crop, the microbes won't get it and won't be stimulated. Well, how do you maximize uptake of organic matter if organic matter is the residual crop itself? No, we're, we're not talking about the uptake of organic matter. We're talking about the uptake of mineral nitrogen. So, so if we can put the nitrogen in the crop, mm-hmm. then we, we keep it out of the soil. It can't be lost, and it won't stimulate the microbes to burn organic matter. That's what I'm talking about. Well, okay, but I mean, what happens to the organic matter then? You know, for, for it, normally it's broken down, and I would think it would make the soil <clears throat> more favorable towards growing stuff the next season. So if it's not broken down, then what happens? Right. So, so that's true. Organic matter does provide a reserve of nutrients like nitrogen for the next season's growth. That's very true. Mm. And that's why soils are the main source of end supply, not fertilizer. But if you reduce the rate at which the organic matter is decomposed, you help sustain a higher organic matter level in the soil, and that does nothing but good for productivity because organic matter stores water, it increases infiltration of rainwater, it's a win-win. It also supplies those nutrients, and it holds other nutrients through cation exchange. So there are many advantages and benefits from having more organic matter, and the strategy I'm talking about is having more by reducing the loss from stimulating the soil microbes. What is the trade-off here, though? The, the trade-off. If you have less decomposition of organic matter, again, like you said, the bacteria don't use as much carbon. They're not as active. They don't, uh, right. you know, they're not chewing it up. So more organic matter remains in the soil for next year's crop. So is it all beneficial or are there trade-offs or negative aspects to, to doing this? Well, okay, so... Again, the interaction between carbon and nitrogen is at the focal point of of the whole process. So if you build up organic matter, and especially organic matter that's high in carbon, then yes, it's going to have the effect of tying up mineral nitrogen, and that can reduce the availability to the next crop. But the normal process is that organic matter is a kind of a, a fluid resource. It does need to break down in order to perform some of its functions, but you want to maintain a as high a level as you can to make the soil better in many other respects. So it's it's a balancing act, and having more organic matter is generally a very good thing. Hmm. So okay, so is there? I guess there's a sweet spot between again retaining X amount of organic matter versus utilizing it for yes, you know, again the the stuff that gets utilized. What what benefit does it bring when it gets utilized versus not? Right. So, yeah, there is a sweet spot. You're, you're right. And so when the organic matter is utilized, it releases nutrients that are bound to it. And the foremost among those would be nitrogen. 
So it makes the nitrogen available in a mineral form that can now be used by the next crop. And that's a really important process. So there's two ways. There's cover crop, which also its decomposition eventually would lead to more organic matter. Then there's also, I guess, slowing the uh, the consumption of the existing organic matter. Yes, hmm. yes. So how do you utilize these two things to, again, make it, you know, have optimal conditions to be able to relentlessly grow corn to the end of time? Right. It, it, it is a balancing act. And it depends upon the type of cover crop that's being grown and the kind of residues that are decomposing. If you're growing a cereal crop, like cereal rye or annual rye, then you're not adding nitrogen from biological fixation, but you are adding carbon in the residue. And the effect is going to be the microbes will break down the residue and tie up available nitrogen in order to do it. And that's going to reduce nitrogen supply to the next crop. So you need to be cognizant of that issue with non-legume cover crops. Well, so those kind of cover crops, I would guess you plant them and then what, you pull them all out X number of weeks before you're going to plant your, your regular cash crop? Yes, so correct. they don't decay? Correct. They're going, they're going to, you don't pull them out. You, you kill them by, by some approach like rolling or crimping and with a non-organic system, maybe herbicides. But you, you leave and return the residue to the soil. It doesn't get taken away. So that residue is going to break down. And when it does, the microbes will need nitrogen. But why, but why wouldn't you just take it out, though? And then it won't break down. It won't leave residue. No, and maybe no. more nitrogen will be preserved. No, no. no, one of the main points of cover crops is to, just what the name says, cover with the crop. Cover the soil. You want to protect the surface soil from things like raindrop impact, reducing runoff and erosion. The cover crop helps to do that. Right. But again, if if you leave it right up until the, let's say you leave it until the end and you grind it up, it goes into the soil. And now a week later, you plant corn versus let's say you grind it up a month early and then let it go fallow for, let's say, a month and then plant the corn. Would there be a difference there? Or is it better to grind it up and literally take it out of the soil? I don't know what you do with it, but, you know, maybe it's left nitrogen in the soil but then you don't have the organic matter to, to decompose and, and take up nitrogen again. Right. So that, that cover crop, if we're talking about a non-legume especially, has taken up nitrogen from the soil. And you would want to return and keep that nitrogen as part of what the soil can supply. So it's not a good idea to, re, to remove the residues from the crop. Okay. But again, now how do you control uh, the consumption of residues? So you have some there, but not Okay, so so there's a lot of issues with cover crops, and 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 that's certainly not my field of expertise. But one of the issues is the timing of removal and and of killing the cover crop. And in that sense, I can mention a couple points. One is with the fact that a growing cover crop is a cover crop that is depleting soil moisture, and and this can cause real problems if the year turns out to be dry and and it can destroy the main crop mm. so so that that calls for for some important choices on the part of the farmer as to when he cuts cuts out the cover crop the other issue is with non legumes like cereal rye you're going to get to the point where the cover crop ties up nitrogen during breakdown and so if if you don't give some time 
for that to happen before the main crop is planted, again, you can induce nitrogen deficiency. Hmm. So people not only need to know which cover crops to use, but when to, when to leave them in there, when to take them, you know, is it uh, this cover yes. crop works best with corn, this one yes. best with that, et cetera. Yes, precisely. Yes. It's complicated. Okay. And I, I, I see, you know, if someone is just left to their own devices, I guess there's a good likelihood that they'll try this and it quote unquote doesn't work because they didn't do it the right way. Yeah. Yeah. Cover crops. I mean, cover crops, if they aren't done correctly, can be a disaster. Oh, yes. So there's, as you said, there's a lot of, a lot of factors that need to be considered. Hmm. So, I mean, have you, have you developed uh, an idealized plan for farmers that are growing in certain areas, let's say in the U.S., you know, in Iowa or wherever they grow a ton of corn, you know, have you been able to make a set of suggestions that would help them optimize what they're doing better, reduce inputs, et cetera? Well, we've come up with a soil nitrogen test and it's gotten mixed reviews in the last 20 years, but it, it does open the door to variable rate nitrogen, which is really where we need to be going. We need to adjust the rate of nitrogen fertilizer according to what the soil can supply. And, and this test provides the means to make those adjustments. And it's being used for variable rates by some in the private sector. Mm-hmm. So does that require consistent testing of the soil as you go through the growing season and the non-growing season? The test I refer to as the Illinois N test or ISNT. This is a pre-plant test, which means that the sampling is done prior to the growing season. And you get, typically it'll be done in March or April. And you'll, hmm. get, you'll get an estimate of how much nitrogen could be supplied by the soil, which can then be used to adjust the fertilizer input if you're going to be applying the fertilizer, for example, uh, during the growing season. Oh, so it's a one-time test. I mean, that's excellent. Okay, correct. It's you a don't have to do test. it multiple times, right? Correct. Yes. I mean, why not? Uh, you know, test additionally a couple times, especially if you're going to break up the nitrogen application. You know, let's say you do it in uh, in thirds at different stages, and you test before each application. I mean, you can tune how much you need to put in, and maybe you could reduce it quite a bit. So it's optimal. Um, it is possible to do multiple tests uh, during the growing season, but an approach that may make more sense is to do the pre-plant part of the testing with this Illinois N test and then follow it during the growing season by testing for nitrate. And so that can help to clarify how much N is actually being supplied to the plants when they need it. And Mm -hmm. if, if, for example, it turns out that the growing season is short on precip, then you may have had the reserves in that soil, but they didn't mineralize, they didn't become available, and the nitrate wouldn't show up. And then you may have to think about maybe a supplemental fertilizer treatment. Hmm. Well, if uh, nitrogen, sorry, nitrate is present, is there uh, now things that can help remove that or suck it out of the soil? Well, the, the, main, the main thing you want to suck it out of the soil with is the crop. That there, it's going to do some a lot of good, and it will keep it out of the environment. So, so the, the presence of nitrate, the presence of nitrate indicates that you've over fertilized. Yes, and the crop now is blocked from uptake. Yeah, the crop nitrate sitting there. Okay. Yeah, the crop doesn't need all that nitrate, and so you have you have nitrate left unused 
by the crop in the soil. But again, what would you do if you have excess nitrate? You're like, uh oh, you know, how do you, is, is it too late well, to help the crop? Like, could you temporarily do something to drain it out? What would you do? Well, if you have excess nitrate, then the crop, the crop has what it needs. And so now it becomes an issue of having too much. And how are you going to manage that? There are different options, but I would make the point that the best way to manage nitrogen is to mm-hmm. go for the source. Not right, don't, let it, don't let it happen in the first place. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But I mean, if it does happen, is there anything that you imagine that could help? Well, um, one option that's been looked at in, in many studies has been cleaning up tile drainage water with the use of what are called bioreactors. So using carbon-based microbe activities to consume the nitrate and take it through a process we call denitrification, get it out of the water. So it's, it's, it's a purifying approach for reducing water pollution, but it's not perfect because one of the products of denitrification is a greenhouse gas called nitrous oxide. So in effect, you're trading water pollution for air pollution. So there's no other way that you know of to uh, suck nitrates out of the soil. There, there's, there's I'm no. Trying to solve way. it all on this phone call. <laughs> we we may not succeed. <laughs> I know. That's what you're. As I said, the best approach is not to put the excess fertilizer there to begin right. with. Yeah. 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 Huh. How is this being received? You know the communication of these uh, these optimization. You know, are you being demonized and uh, you know told you're well, you're terrible or are people listening? <laughs> well, there has been some of that. When w- when we developed this Illinois N test back around 2001, it was being the work to do that was being supported through fertilizer checkoff funds in Illinois. But as as the message drifted toward the idea that this test could help reduce fertilizer rates, the problems began to multiply because the fertilizer checkoff board was was uh, composed of mainly of representatives from the fertilizer industry. <laughs> you get the mm, picture. What a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> what a surprise. I wonder and what they so, recommended. <laughs> yeah, so they cut off funding from, from the project, yes. Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, sales are important. And and if the fertilizer industry is making the decisions, that's going to be a significant issue. Yeah. <laughs> it's too bad because it's it's a point of decision that doesn't serve the interest of the farmers or the public. It serves the fertilizer industry. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, what, what groups are listening to your protocols and, you know, the ones that are using it, uh, what are they experiencing? farmers that are using it so, so there there's some usage uh, amongst farmers uh, I, i've heard i've heard good reports back in some cases and it is being used for variable rate nitrogen mm-hmm. um, there are some fertilizer companies that are actually open to <clears throat> shifting toward lower rates and better management there really are there are some and we've spoken at at meetings for some of these companies and we have another Speaking engagement next week down in Jacksonville. Same hmm. way that there are some companies that are trying to find 
better management points as opposed to just using more fertilizer. And, and that's yeah. an encouraging sign. Yeah, no, definitely. What's what's your uh, estimation? How much less, I know it depends on everything, but how much less fertilizer do you think could be used uh, per acre or per you know uh, number of plants or whatever metric you want to use if you do the system? I'll just I'll just draw from a database that in a paper that we published in 2006, and there were 102 sites in that study. These were on-farm sites, and out of out of those 102 sites, the actual optimum end rate determined from yield data mm-hmm. was about on the order of 80, 85 pounds of N per acre. And that's way lower than what most farmers apply. These days, it is normal for farmers to apply over 200 pounds per acre. So it's what, like a a a two-thirds potential reduction in the amount of fertilizer? Yeah, potentially uh, there could be a substantial reduction. But again, the farmer is, you have to bear in mind that most of the of the farm ground in states like Illinois is going to be cash rented. And the farmer doesn't want to take a chance on a low yield that may not work out so well in the future for renting the land. And, and that's where nitrogen comes into play as an insurance policy. Mm. But I will say this, since uh, 2021, fertilizer prices have been going up, up, up. Right. That insurance policy is a lot more expensive than it used to be. Mm. Crazy. Well, I'm sure, uh, like I said, the farmers in the Netherlands and uh, in Germany and in Canada and the places where they're being forced to destroy their own farms, uh, and they, in, in the name of supposed environmentalism, uh, you know, probably will be very willing to listen. Otherwise, they're uh, they're dead. So they may be a willing audience to hear this. Yeah, and yeah, that's a really serious issue, and. <laughs> If if thousands of farmers are driven out of of their livelihood in in the Netherlands, there's going to be quite an impact on food production in Europe, mm-hmm. and and it's and it's really serious. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we'll see if uh, if any of the elites care, but uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But at least again, there's a there's a solution if people can actually just get to it and uh, and hear what you have to say. So I think it's very important you're here on the podcast, by the way, because of this. And I, I might add one more comment here. That is that my colleague Said and I were in the Netherlands um, back in 2013, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. And we we spoke there on 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 these same topics, and they were very receptive to this message of potentially cutting back fertilizer doses. And we had one. I remember there was one comment made there that they had had to increase their fertilizer doses over the years because the soil was getting weaker. Hmm. And that's that's exactly in line with what we found in the moral plots. As the organic matter is depleted, the soil can supply less nutrients, hmm. especially nitrogen, and you need to up the fertilizer dose. And it works uh, directly against the concerns they now have. Hmm. What about um, farmers that are growing stuff and they have a significant amount of you know crops left? Uh, can other farms buy that residual organic matter and take it if the farm wants to just get rid of it? Let's say, uh, are they I, foolish enough to want to get rid of it? Well, they shouldn't be. Um, I know, but you know, you know, 
the the main uh, to my knowledge the main way in which that could happen to shift organic materials from one site to another would be through manure so you have these confinement livestock facilities producing a lot of manure and mm. and what really ends up happening in many cases is that they need to find enough land to dispose of it as mm. so they mm-hmm. won't so they won't overapply it and therein lies the market for neighbors who may be able to to use that manure to build up their own soils. Mm. Okay, well, very interesting. Well, Rich, um, yeah, I've had you on for an hour. I, I'm sorry to question you to death here, but uh, you've got a lot of great info. Where can people listening find out more about the nuances of what you're talking about? So whether they're just a small homesteader, you know, in the U.S. or wherever in the world, or they have a larger farm, and you know, you pique their curiosity by listening and they want to do something. They want to embark upon this path to help themselves. Well, I I probably shouldn't do this, but the best option would be to email me at Mulvaney, M-U-L-V-A-N-E-Y, at Illinois.edu. And I can refer them to a number of publications we've put out on these topics. Okay, excellent. Well, Richard, again, thank you for uh, for coming. And uh, oh, one last question. Why is it called, you said it was called the moral plots yes. as if they were immoral plots why was it called <laughs> no no uh, the, the, mo- <laughs> the moral there is spelled m-o-r-r-o-w oh, and, Morrow. and, it, and Morrow it was a there. it was a name actually it was the first dean of the college of agriculture on this campus the plot oh, okay. got named after him okay i thought it was the moral plot no. like, you know it's a moral <laughs> Morrow, morrow. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, very good. Well, Rich, thank you for, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. I hope this will be useful to you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.